0: Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club.
1: All right. So, Matt, uh, we are talking on the Monday after Thanksgiving, Cyber
0: Monday, as they now call it. How was your Thanksgiving? My Thanksgiving was lovely. We had uh, my wife's parents and brother here. We had a Thanksgiving dinner that couldn't be beat. We had a delightful time. We watched Holiday Baking Championship and did all sorts of lovely things. How was your Thanksgiving?
1: It was very good. Uh, You know, our mom and dad came up here. We've got a hipster bowling alley bar that has opened around here recently that dad wanted to try out. So on Wednesday evening, he and I went down there and we had a fun time. Uh, He brought his own bowling ball and bowling shoes, which he apparently bought at some point in the mid-90s and have basically never used uh, so he brought those up with him in his very mid-90s bag that he had them in it was teal and purple It uh, <laughs> couldn't look more 1995 it tried he proceeded to have his bowling shoes which he had barely ever used fall apart while we were in the middle of the game the glue was just too old and the soles fell off and also he has not used that bowling ball since he was in his what would have been 50s, I think. It's now a little too heavy for him. So <laughs> somewhat for bringing up his own stuff. But uh, he and I had a ton of fun. We had a fantastic Thanksgiving dinner, which was a big collaboration between most of us, really. Then we went out and did our annual tradition of going to Ayers Cray Christmas Tree Farm just over the border in Virginia and cutting our own
0: Christmas tree. We kept it to a nice modest 11 feet this year. Yes, I, you guys have a two-story living room and so you always have huge trees. We do not have a two-story living room so we uh, we have not gotten ours yet but we will get a much more modest tree than the ones yes. you guys always get.
1: Yes, well, we did get up to 14 feet one year, and uh, we realized that that was too much. That was a bridge too far. (laughs) So we keep it smaller than that now. Yes, indeed.
0: Well, that's wonderful. So how are you feeling about
1: March 1966? I'm enjoying it. It's generally a good month. I mean, it has its ups and downs.
0: Don't get me wrong. A legendary month for Marvel Comics in some ways. I'm looking forward to this. All right. Let's go ahead and do Spider-Man number 34, The Thriller Hunt. So we have concluded the epic master planner storyline. Now we are going to have smaller stories to round out Dicko's final four months on this book or final five months on this book, I guess. Uh, starting with this one, The Thrill of the Hunt, fairly standard story in which Craven, the hunter, returns. We have a fantastic title page. It says scripted and edited by Stanley, plotted and illustrated by Steve Dicko, lettered and relished by Sam Rosen. Craven is examining all of his trophies. Dicko could have just drawn one or two trophies, but uh, he, uh, <laughs> he instead draws uh, how many are here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. At least 11 trophies, beasts of all sorts of things that have been stuffed by Kraven. Kraven then decides to drink from a horn and go out and wrestle a lion just for fun. This is in some sort of African safari he has. Please, Simba, I will allow you to run off and lick your wounds, but my next victim will be far less lucky. So then he decides to go ahead and... Take a bunch of his animals. I don't know why he has to take his animals with him. We then get a shocking scene where Betty Brant is talking to Peter Parker, asks his secret, and he climbs up on the ceiling, rips off his shirt, and reveals that he's Spider Man. Then she wakes up screaming and realizes that this is all a dream. So this is fascinating. Subconsciously, she has figured out that Peter Parker is Spider Man, and she remembers her dream, so she knows she's figured this of subconsciously. But then she's like, "Oh, it can't possibly be. Uh, whatever Peter's secret is, whatever he's hiding, it can't be that." She looks out her venetian blinds and then we cut to peter looking at his venetian blinds the venetian blinds connect everyone in new york he finds out that ma is doing quite well he goes to school and he is finally catching on here about why everybody despises him at empire state (laughs) university gwen sees him going by intentionally drops her book for him to pick up but then steps on the book with her these saddle shoes what what are these shoes called?
1: Uh, I I don't Mary Jane's maybe no, those I don't Mary know. Jane's I don't or know. Are those saddle I, shoes? I don't know. No, no, not Mary Jane's. That wouldn't be it. Anyway, probably no. saddle shoes. Let's go with that.
0: She steps on the book and says, "You don't you dare touch my book!" And he's like, "Huh? Look, I don't get it. What gives?" And then Norman, sorry, not Norman Osborne, Harry Osborne <laughs> says, "Do we have to spell it out for you? You're as popular here as mouse a tongue." Says, "You tell him, Harry boy. You've been snubbing us since school started."
1: Well, let me point out that when Gwen steps on the book and doesn't let him pick it up, Peter had just said, allow me, fair maiden, which, you know, just sounds like something that would, uh, you know, sounds like an incel thing <laughs> these days. <laughs> sounds like he should be wearing a, well, I was going to say he should be wearing a fedora. Granted, everyone in Ditko's books was wearing a fedora <laughs> these days, but yes, looks like, uh, anyway, you 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 get the picture.
0: Yes, there was a great Amy Schumer skit about the guy who calls every woman milady and is uh, problematic. But so then Harry Osborne says, you've been snubbing us since school started walking around here like a swell headed snob just because you want a scholarship. And Pete finally catches on here. He says, now I get it. I was worried about it. They wrapped in my own problems. They thought I was high heading them. Peter at this point just accepts that he will never have any friends in college. It's of course <laughs> doing science with test tubes. But when Stacy is still thinking about him and sort of obsessed with him. We now, now, she's
1: got more visible hair clips now at the corners of her head, and I have seen many people point out that they couldn't figure out what those were and that they looked like devil horns, which they yes. kind of do. And I don't know whether that's deliberate or not,
0: but uh, it's notable. Yeah, they do look like devil horns. But she continues to look beautiful. Dicko is uh, – you know, I think that Dicko knows how to draw beautiful women just fine. It's just that Betty Brandt was sort of an average girl. And he was drawing her average because she was sort of an average girl. And now we have Gwen Stacy, the first truly beautiful woman in Peter Parker's life. And Sticko is drawing her truly beautiful. I think that's what he was doing.
1: But oh, so then, that's 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 a good point that you know he might just be like well how often you know let me draw people as they really are in the world and how many yeah uh, I could see that as an as an argument
0: I like how Peter Parker is unpopular for an entirely different reason in college than he was unpopular in high school that uh, <laughs> Stanley or Steve Jacob is inventing new ways for him to unintentionally look like an asshole and then <laughs> get himself in trouble we then cut to Craven who is coming home to his lair he now has in new york which of course is filled with the shadows of venetian bonds and he decides to put on all his stuff continue to drink his special potion and he comes up with a plan now Mm -hmm.
1: what is behind him on page seven panel one those aren't (laughs) hunting trophies those are like giant head sculptures with some spider webs on them oh 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 oh. okay what this is the chameleon's lair. That's why there are faces all ah. over the
0: place. Right, yes, it's because- the chameleon's last hideout, the one he used when the two of us teamed up. And so, yes, there's all these head models, I guess, for him to model his face masks on. We come to jj Jameson, who's getting a cab when suddenly he's being harassed by Spider-Man, who seems like he can stick to walls. But I guess he's just you can always see that he's sort of climbing on ledges. And it's really Craven, who has been dressing up as Spider-Man and harassing Joe Jameson and making Spider-Man look bad in various ways. Finally, Spider-Man can't take it anymore. He goes out, swinging around the city, finds Kraven. Page 11, fifth panel. What the heck is going on there? He says, we'll see about that. First, I'll spray some jungle scent on you to cancel out your cursed spider scents. What is the object in Craven's hand that he is spraying the... You would think he would have like a squirt bottle or something, um, yeah. or you know, the sort of thing you squirt your cats with, but uh, it's very hard <laughs> yeah. to tell what he has.
1: You're right. I hadn't noticed that. It looks kind of like he's squeezing a sponge.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, it's <laughs> not, not good storytelling from Dicko. Can I tell <laughs> what on earth that is supposed to be in his hand? Spider-Man fights Kraven. A bunch of goons also happen to be there just to complicate things. Spider-Man has to web them up. Finally, after fighting Kraven for many pages, Spider-Man does not have his spider sense because of the sponge uh, that uh, <laughs> that has been squeezed at him. Craven promises that he will confess all if Spider-Man beats him and Spider-Man does beat him, beats the crap out of him, leaves him hanging from a building with his web on him and with the little spider flashlight thing, which I guess he just, no, I guess he didn't lay behind. He's just standing there pointing at it with his belt until (laughs) someone comes by. He takes some pictures. And then I always like it when there are honorable villains and Craven turns out to be an honorable villain. Should I do my Russian uh, accent here? Says, I, I I eagerly await it. Yes, it's true. I impersonated Spider-Man. It was I who threatened James- Jonah Jameson. But why are you telling us this? Whatever else I may be, I am a man of honor. I have given my word. He confesses all. Jameson, of course, is just to hear this. And Jameson is at this point interrupted by his new secretary. Speaking of Deco drawing pretty girls, she is a pretty girl. She is raven-haired. She is a black-haired new secretary of J.J. Jameson. She thinks, this is wonderful. Imagine, I'm the personal secretary of the publisher of the Daily Bugle, but I never thought Betty Brant would leave. It happened so suddenly. I wonder what happened. Peter still does not find this out because he is afraid to face Betty, and he thinks she would never accept me as Spider-Man. But Spider-Man, I've been and shall always be for as long as I live. And then we find out the Molten Man is reappearing next. I think this is an excellent issue of Spider-Man. People tend to say that the post-Master Planner issues with Spider-Man weren't as good, but I think Ditko is still giving it its all here. This is an excellent issue. It doesn't have the ambition of the Master Planner storyline, but I think this is a fantastic issue of Spider-Man.
1: Yeah, uh, and I think that probably it's the looter issue and the just a man named Joe issue that really give these issues that rep, that it sort of uh, ends up coloring people's perception of all the other issues after that storyline. But no, I, I like this one. Craven is perfectly fine. Not a fantastic thing, but it works well. But then the personal stuff that we've got with him realizing the situation he's in personally at college... As well as uh, Betty clearly having PTSD flashbacks combined with her uh, intuition is not the right word. I don't want to be like female intuition, but, you know, her unconscious knowledge that, of course, some part of her brain has figured out that Peter Parker really is Spider-Man. And so mix that together with some PTSD and you have some really interesting character development between these various characters. Yes. Some things that jumped out at me along the way. The fact that Craven refers to the lion that he hunts and lets go as Simba. Isn't that the name of the Lion King?
0: Yes, I believe that is the name for lion in some African language.
1: Okay. So when Craven is sitting there drinking his jungle drink or whatever it is that he's got in the chameleon's With- lair.
0: You're going to um, have to narrow it down. He drinks his jungle drink in many places in the station. <laughs> yes.
1: um, uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, one, one must uh, enjoy one's jungle drink. So I believe this is, yeah, page seven. We talk sometimes about how the artist, whether it's Ditko or Kirby or whoever else, has a clear storytelling intent, and then Lee kind of overlays something on top of it that seems to just be apropos of nothing. You're like, why did he feel this was necessary? So on page seven, if you look at panels one, two, and three, that's clearly a sequence that's happening in one scene, right? But yes. at the top of panel three, it says, then... After long hours of careful planning, scheming, I have it. The perfect lure. It's like, why did he add several hours between those two panels? It doesn't add anything to the story.
0: (laughs) It's clearly not what happened. Stanley was reading Think Slow, Act Fast. And so he's going like, okay, I've got to show that he's thinking very slowly about this. And it's taking him many hours to sit there and think about it.
1: I'll take your word for it. I have no idea what you're talking about, but that's fine. We don't need to go into that. (laughs) So uh, later when those goons just sort of show up and are just an extra hassle for uh, Spider-Man while he's fighting Kraven, Spider-Man says to the goons, sorry, gents, this is a private party. And one of the goons says, it's him. And Spider-Man returns with, you mean it is he. And okay, so two things. One, I'm not entirely sure it is it is e he, but even if it is, I know a lot of science nerds and I know a lot of language nerds, and there is not much overlap between them. Like, you know, yeah. I I'm one of the few people that's gonna overlap between those things. And I know that it's very uncommon because I never meet anyone else who does. That it's just like, eh. I know he's a nerd, but there are different kinds of nerds there, uh, Stan. (laughs) Then also uh, with, with the whole interaction with those goons, at one point, Spider-Man is hiding behind a doorway and one of the goons comes through and Spider-Man punches him and says, oops, sorry. I was hoping you were craven. Well, I think that the power of the punch that he would give if he thought this was Craven coming through the door would probably be a tad unhealthy for, <laughs> for just random goon. Final note that I have is when we're introduced to uh, Jameson's new raven-haired secretary, she thinks to herself, I never thought that Betty Brant would leave. I wonder, So it happened so suddenly, I wonder what happened. And then there's a caption that says, and so do we, young lady, so do we. And I think that's basically Stan Lee being like, yeah, I got no clue. I mean, (laughs) 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 Steve Ditko just did this. I I have no idea what he's going to do with her in the future. (laughs) (laughs) A A little honest there. So that is
0: it for my thoughts on this. Yes, a good issue. Oh, I was going to point out at one point, Aunt May says, Peter Parker, you're a caution. Have we talked about that yes. in the past? Yeah. Yes, we have.
1: I, I I, think it was in an, an Ant-Man and Wasp issue. And we were like, is that a
0: saying? Well, apparently it was with Stan Lee. I don't know. And including Aunt May. So even the older generation has discovered your caution. And I should point out at the end of the book, there is a letter from Richard Peeney. Oh, really? I missed that. Wow. A big comics fan who then eventually became a comics professional with his independent comic, ElfQuest, which would eventually be republished by Marvel Comics. So he would eventually enter the Marvel stable, belatedly, many years later. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to Daredevil.
1: Okay, so this one is my turn. Not nearly as good an issue in this case. As a matter of fact, I find the Plunderer to be a terrible villain. But we will. Uh, well, let me put it this way: hey. he's just he's just gotten a downgrade, and he and he got a downgrade from being a pirate cosplayer. Uh, if you can have a downgrade from that, that's what he just did.
0: Yeah, I like like pirate villains. He was a fun pirate villain. And now in this issue, he's like, no, apparently those pirate clothes were just his civilian clothes. That was not a costume in any way, shape or form. (laughs) That was just what he wakes up and puts on in the morning. And then he's like, now I'm going to become a supervillain. Now I'm going to get a supervillain costume. It's like, dude, that wasn't a supervillain costume, what you were already wearing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So we see the plunderer and he's got all these goons behind him. They're all dressed in exactly the same uniform, which is white and blue, which just – Doesn't work for me at all in any way, but he is uh, disintegrating a tank in the foreground, which looks pretty cool, and there are missiles in the background. We're going to find out more about that in a minute. So, Jack Kirby is gone. He was here for just two issues, presumably just to sort of train John Romita on the Marvel style of storytelling. Right. Uh, You know, I'm guessing that, you know, after both Joe Orlando and Wally Wood not really working out well in the Marvel Universe, maybe he's like, you know what, we maybe ought to just give this guy a little bit of a soft entry. Right? Uh, right? A little bit of a tutorial. Uh, that's my guess.
0: We've got stories, Stan Lee, penciling John Romita without uh, layouts from Jack Kirby. And then we've got inking Frankie Ray. So we're used to having Romita on inks. And Romita, I love Romita pencils. I love Romita inks even more. It's really the Romita inks that were making them look like Milt canif that were really giving a lot of personality to the book. And it's got a lot less personality, this issue. I Frank Ray's next on Inker, and he does a perfectly fine job inking this, but not as good a job as Romita was doing inking himself answers all of the above, plus lettering pretty cynic.
1: Yeah, and yeah, you, you just don't like the combo of the two, which is perfectly fair. So, the plot as we had it last issue, because this is a continued story, Daredevil was in England along with Kazar. We found out that Kazar is the long-lost savage brother of Lord Plunder, who has this castle in England. Kazar and the Plunderer's father had discovered what has not yet been named, but will eventually be declared as Vibranium, particularly the antarctic version of vibranium an international network of spies of some sort think specter or something of that nature has been activated to come and try to take the vibranium that sound like a good uh summary of where we are yes excellent yes Okay. <laughs> Thank you. One of these spies has successfully, well, it looks like he's killed Daredevil and Kazar, but of course he hasn't. He's just subdued them and is able to apparently reach into Kazar's bikini briefs and get out his chunk of vibranium there. Daredevil is somehow able to follow this car, even though it really doesn't look like it makes any sense. The plunderer is turning on his various servants, particularly Feepers, who is the one who now belongs to this international criminal spy gang the spy who comes in actually shoots feepers and i think that that was yeah that was an accident so feepers is now dead the plunderer who's dressed in his uh, baronial get up or whatever you would call it we find out that he can fight pretty well just by you know hand-to-hand combat we then find more of that as he fights daredevil and then the cops show up. uh I think we saw last issue that plunder had called the cops, and they arrest Kazar Now Kazar was unconscious, so they've got him in ropes now. Daredevil is then trapped inside the castle and uh has to get free by jumping out of a two story glass window, very much as Kazar did in the previous issue. This is a little bit less problematic in that Kazar had nothing on and so all the shattered glass would have just completely gouged him up we can just pretend that daredevil's costume uh might do a little bit more for him
0: nice sequence on page eight the first repudence on page eight of daredevil swinging towards the window on a chandelier nice high angle shot looking at down at him as as he goes out the window and then looking up at him as he goes into the moat of course this is not how moats work the purpose of a moat is not to give you some place to jump into if you jump out the window of the castle. As John Oliver once said to John Stewart, do you, do you even have a moat? Do you even know what it's like to own a moat?
1: no although my lovely spouse talks about how she always ends up making a moat of stuff around her whenever she's sitting someplace so uh, we do have that at this point plunder has been able to recover both halves of this vibranium medallion or as he calls it plunder stone this acts as a key to crack open the vault which has the rest of the vibranium in it plunder is then able to use that to create a vibration weapon uh, a weapon that's able to just vibrate things into disintegrated bits we get a little bit of daredevil on top of a train mm-hmm. and i'm not entirely sure how he ended up on top of a train but it's there just for you matt they, they just, just, they, just th- they just threw it in for no reason whatsoever um, thank you Yo, welcome. Back in the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, they learn that Matt Murdoch is not dead and get a note basically saying, yeah, you got to fly to England and defend this Tarzan-like guy. And that's it. So they're like, okay, we thought he was dead and all we've gotten is a telegram, but sure, we'll head to England. Turns out it was fine this time, unlike in The Avengers last month (laughs) when it was Doctor Doom, (laughs) but could
0: just as easily have been here, but yeah. We will fly to London, take the London bar, learn (laughs) (laughs) learn all of the intricacies of English law. And then we will go ahead and defend a man who cannot speak. or is not speaking to anyone. We will intuit what he might have been accused of, what his excuse might be. And we will defend him in a country whose law system we do not know anything about. Sure, Matt, we will do that. And it's not like Matt is meeting at the airport and getting them caught up on what's going on. Matt is infiltrating the Plunderers organization and has no contact with them other than, I guess, he makes a call. To them, oh no, he sends them a cablegram. No. Yeah. Okay, so he's so this was I recently reprinted a piece of my blog about how the dumbest scene in movie history from Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, where somebody makes phone call from behind the iron curtain to their house in New York State, and uh, <laughs> the person in New York State has no idea that they're calling from behind the iron curtain, and I'm going like, yeah, uh, that's not how long distance worked at the time. I point out that in 1963. Most international business would be done over telegram, that if you were communicating with your office in London, you would be sending telegrams back and forth. Indeed, here is Matt. This is backing me up in 1966. Communicating with the United States, and he sends him a cablegram in which he has to very quickly explain. You know, this is Pemberduck Stop! I'm so alive. Stop! Uh, there is a guy <laughs> named Kaysar. Stop! He has been arrested. <laughs> yeah, um,
1: it's it's uh, sure. Yeah, why not? Um, and they're paying per word. Then they have to go buy two intercontinental plane tickets in 1966. Yeah, it's um. Let's let's just move on. Let's just move on. So then we see the Plunderer has now gotten new cosplay for all of his henchmen they were all dressed up as pirates and told to talk like pirates and then one day he's like you shall no longer talk like pirates you shall know wear these stupid white uniforms with blue capes and not talk like pirates they're like okay boss sure whatever um
0: i presume you're paying me money but that's not entirely clear it seems like the whole reason for this is that ramita or wanted to have jared Polko undercover in the plunderers organization but That meant that everybody in the Plunderers organization need to be wearing Daredevil type outfits in order for him to pass undetected in them. So this seems to be the whole reason for this whole radical story departure is just to give Daredevil a way to go undercover.
1: And then the Plunderers pirate ship slash submarine seems to only be a submarine at this point. Uh <laughs> and he uses it to go to an early warning missile base somewhere in the North Atlantic. And he's gonna take over this missile base as the first step to taking over, I don't know, the world, the country, blackmailing somebody. I'm not entirely sure. One way or yep. the other, his uh vibratory weapon is quite difficult to defend against and he is able to take this missile base very quickly daredevil who was undercover as one of his goons then rips off his mask to reveal his mask those horns were somehow able to flatten out under the white mask that he was wearing on top of it and his red eye holes were able to show as white through the thing and also apparently the mask is a tear off mask because he's able to just literally you can see that he literally ripped it off his own head Uh, so yeah tons of fun once again mask technology in the uh marvel universe far beyond our understanding top of page 15 this is one of those places where the storytelling isn't clear and lee is having to explain what's happened i guess that daredevil is using the cape that he had been wearing in his outfit to whip the vibranium weapon out of the plunderer's hand but we don't see the weapon anywhere or if we do it's not clear what we're looking at lee just has to have the uh word balloon from the plunderer my vibra ray a good maneuver masked man but it will avail you nothing you're doomed i mean could you tell what happened here if you didn't have that dialogue nope nope okay just I th- I was making sure it wasn't just me. Meanwhile, the uh the courtroom is in session. Apparently, Foggy was not able to get himself a proper barrister's wig and they okay. let him into the courtroom oh, anyway. Also Karen's there. I'm not sure <laughs> what's going on with that. They've got Kazar chained up at this point, but he's able to actually break out of his chains and his chains shatter just like that whole joke that people have about, you know, why do chains shatter into pieces when Superman breaks them rather than just having one link pop. <laughs> so apparently, Kazar has that Superman power too. So he goes berserk in the courtroom and uh, they have to gas him daredevil is able to defeat the plunderer just by his pluckiness here yeah because he doesn't have to have any metal weapons of any sort he's just able to do what he can so (laughs) matt then suddenly shows up as foggy and karen are there with kazar in the hospital bed um or not in the hospital bed at the the side of his hospital bed. That would be a whole different story. So yeah, because basically they were able to be like, oh, it turns out the plunder is a bad guy. So his accusations against Kazar must have been no good. So we're just going to go ahead and set this man who cannot speak very well and is barely clothed and has no seeming means of support free in england presumably (laughs) so that's tons of fun a couple things that i skipped while going over this some of the architecture of this castle is very questionable page five there's like a ledge that that daredevil is standing on that it's like what What would that ledge be anyway? And then in the following panel, it's not there, Like He's just jumping down from something. And this sort of tells me that I was being too much of a stickler when I was trying to be a comics penciler at trying to make sure that all the geometric space that people were in would actually make sense. It's like, no. Apparently, you don't have to.
0: You can just – you can just do this. Oh, I didn't notice. I mean, I can't even fathom how hard it is to be a comic artist, you know, just to be able to – like, you have to design a castle. That's a job. People go to school for castle design. People (laughs) go (laughs) – like – Not necessarily just castle design, but architecture (laughs) is something that people – I'm sure there's people who it's like, I'm going to be a castle architect. I'm going to take nothing but castle architecture classes. People go to school for architecture, and you have to be an architect. You have to be a fashion designer. You have to be someone who creates all these outfits. You have to be somebody – I mean, it's just – it's impossible the number yeah. of disciplines you have to master to become a comic book artist. It's insane.
1: <laughs> That's why I became an anchor. It's like all those decisions have been taken care of. Now I just get to draw the pretty pictures. Yeah, the plunderer at one point describes his cost. He says uh, he has a fitting costume, a costume suitable for one who is about to become the monarch of all mankind, a costume for the plunderer. And I'm like, dude, you have got to take a look at yourself in the mirror and figure out where you went wrong in your life choices. This is just terrible. Daredevil at one point punches one of the goons. I guess this is the one whose uh, uniform he takes. And he says to the goon, Thanks for turning around, old top. I hate bopping bad boys from behind. <laughs> Which, okay, so first of all, I guess he's saying old top because it's supposed to be he's talking to a British guy, so he's trying to sound British. But when you put together, he's referring to the person he's talking to as a top, and he says he hates bopping bad boys from behind. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm I, i'm sorry that's uh, i i can't just be reading that into things right i mean i mean this is like cole porter's i'm the bottom you're the top right i mean this, <laughs> but then uh at one point daredevil when he's dressed up as this as this goon thinks to himself if this were on tv or in a comic book i'd say the writer had flipped but plunder actually pulled it off did he though did he did he that's it this is a once again this has just been an insane storyline this whole three issue storyline was just absolutely uh bonkers fun but i'm not gonna miss it too much
0: Wouldn't it make more sense if he said, thanks for turning around, old bottom? I hate bopping bad boys from behind. Wouldn't that make more sense? Well, no, no,
1: because he (laughs) hates bopping bad boys from behind. So he's saying, thank you for turning around. Okay. You're the top. I'm the bottom. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. How much of this do you think we can leave in the episode? I hope you can leave some of it in (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right yeah any other thoughts you have about this absolutely bonkers issue
0: i am glad to be done with this storyline it has been a trial by fire for john Romita, <laughs> who has had an absolutely crazy dinosaur filled storyline to begin his daredevil run i'm glad to be done with it and to be getting back to i guess Ox's back next issue a little bit more of a street level villain Rubina has yet to settle in on this book and get to draw an actual daredevil story yet so hopefully next issue we will actually get a story that is any business being a daredevil story <laughs> i think we will i think we will okay. yes i end i end my daredevil notes by saying big dumb story this book has no identity so <laughs>
1: <laughs> indeed bill everett started it out on a good solid footing in a good direction and it has just gotten bandied about this way and that ever since
0: <laughs> yep. Okay, so Uh,
1: what are you doing next? Which issue are we moving
0: to? Well, so this is the thing. Normally, I would move on to Journey into Mystery at this point. But Journey into Mystery doesn't exist anymore. It has changed its name to Thor. We used to be Alphabetical Order. Then we started changing around to move Avengers to the end. Then we started changing around so that we don't have all the good books in every other episode. Now we're going to change it right more. I'm going to go ahead and do Thor even though that violates Alphabetical Order even more because it is no longer called Journey into Mystery. It is now called The Mighty Thor, the first book of many that will change from being an anthology title to the title of one hero. So I got to say, right away, The Mighty Thor, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, this cover is a hell of a cover. And oh, yeah. it is clearly inked by Vince Coetta. And this is the best cover Vince Coletta ever has inked, and I think ever will ink. He is using a brush. He is creating a sense of weight. He is got, creating a sense of actual light sources. This is a very famous cover. It will get homaged, maybe more than, well, I won't say more than any other cover, but it will be, I would say, in the top 10 homaged or maybe top 20 Marvel homaged covers. And it is Thoric grappling with Hercules. It is absolutely gorgeous.
1: Yeah, I'll give you that. And Yes, we, in our youth, saw the homage to this with Beta Ray Bill and Thor. And I had no idea it was was an homage at the time. Uh, You know, later I saw this, I'm like, oh. Uh, Yeah, but it's difficult to have people at such close quarters, so tight in on them, wailing on each other and have it actually kind of work. They're all kind of crowded in there. But yeah, this is fantastic. Yes. So However, then, we, we go from that, which you say is, you know, some of the best Vinnie Coletta inking you've seen, to the splash page. Uh, and I want you to look at Thor's eyeballs in the splash page. Yes. And uh, give me your thoughts.
0: Cross-eyed eyeballs on Thor. On the cover, we don't get to see two eyes on either of them. So uh, that helps. But yes, Thor looking like he's been wearing the glasses from the movie The Jerk on uh, <laughs> on, on the splash page. But still, still shockingly good inking. is never going to get two eyes that look right together. But this whole battle, we then cut to... Honestly, you're
1: talking about this splash page and the inking. Looking at the way the rocks and rubble are inked, that actually, if you'd shown me that and said, hey, Steve, was this little detail from a uh, page that you inked? I'd probably be like, yeah, it looks like me. Yeah. That's interesting.
0: Huh. Okay. Yeah. So you, so you being the top, you being the the pinnacle of. <laughs> wait a minute! Wait a minute! Is this the greatest pencil of all? Uh, is this the greatest anchor of all time, Steve Bird? It it could be, Steve worthy. Um
1: so <laughs> No, no, I, I just want to object to you referring to me as the top after the discussion we just had about Daredevil. <laughs> <paranormal. laughs> I mean, as they say, not that there's anything wrong with that.
0: <laughs> not, there's anything wrong with that. Okay, so we are still in the middle of our big paddle between Thor and Hercules. They are wailing on each other for several pages. We then get Odin. Ever forget, is this the same helmet Odin was wearing last issue? We are sort of in the middle of all this. It is a, oh, this may be a no. new helmet, a spectacular, bizarre Odin helmet with uh, two huge horns with a then little strange squiggly thing connecting the two horns where and, he is viewing what is going on on Earth.
1: And I will point out that on panel four, page three, we have more proto-Kirby Crackle.
0: Yes, page three, panel four has proto-Kirby Crackle. That is true. There so that is. means
1: that the first two appearances of proto-Kirby Crackle that we've run into have both been in issues of Thor and therefore inked by Coletta, right? That's true. So then
0: uh, he looks out to see what's going on on Midgard, sees Thor fighting Hercules. Fantastic sequence on page four of oh, Thor yeah. and Hercules crunching a truck together. It is, again, like the work a penciler has to do. A crumpled up truck is a hard thing to draw to show that something – huge and metal has been crumpled in a believable way. It is absolutely huge. They are continuing to grapple with each other. They end up fighting on top of an IRT train for a while. Oh, you know, I could describe every blow of this fight. I'm not going to, (laughs) you know, we get on page nine, another super close up of the two of them grappling with each other. Shockingly well inked by Claudette. He is doing the greatest inking job he has ever done in this issue. I think he is just rising to the challenge. Uh, We cut back to... Odin, and have we ever met Seedring before? His right-hand man here says, Whene'er we speak, I find new justification for those who call thee Seedring the Merciless. Yet thou reckest the highest of all my counsel, and thy word, though painful to mine heart, have the ring of truth of them. Seedring is saying they have to punish Thor, so they do. They send a beam down to him and cut his strength in half. And very quickly, he has his ass beat high. Hercules, because his strength has been cut in half. Which he thinks this has happened before. I guess this has happened before where Odin punished Thor by cutting his strength in half. Has that already happened?
1: Yeah, yeah. We, I don't remember what issue, but we have seen that before in the issues we've read.
0: So then everybody comes up to Thor, including the Hollywood agent, who's like, don't you remember? I was going to take you to Hollywood, make you rich and famous. And he says, you will make Hercules famous. But he then has lost all interest in Jane Foster, decides to go off with the Hollywood guy and heads off to Hollywood. Jane then runs up to Thor and says, of course, I acted like a fool. I only wanted to make you jealous, nothing more. And Thor is like, well, I am utterly humiliated, you know, by my father, not by you. Heaven forbid that he actually say to Jane, you're treating me awful. He storms off. But then of all people, Odin contacts Jane and says... He fought like the true son of Odin. He bore his defeat like a god. But now he hath need of thee. He hath done penance enough. Go to him, woman. And she thinks, I will. Oh, I will. So now Odin is trying to get Jane and Thor back together, which is somewhat (laughs) out of character. And (laughs) that is the end of the Thor story. But I think this is an excellent Thor story. I think this is one of the all-time greats. It's a fantastic battle. And as I said last issue, the battle could not be more, what did I call it, last issue? Contrived? Contrived, yes. As I said last issue, fight cannot be more contrived. Indeed, the fight cannot be more contrived, but I don't mind. It is (laughs) contrive away and get these two wailing on each other. And it is great to have Hercules brought up to modern day. Soon they will do the same with the Warriors three. And that is all for the good.
1: So let's just go ahead and say Odin did ask Zeus to send Hercules down to humble his son. And Hercules being Hercules just kind of got lazy and distracted on the way to getting there. Let's just say that that makes the issue work so much better. So yes. I noticed that when they're fighting on top of the subway train, they end up going from an underground train to an open air station. Uh, I'm picturing that as a station that is near where you used to live <laughs> yes. in Morningside Heights. So that might be the one, two, three they happen to be on. I don't know. Or the ABC. Who knows? It was just, um,
0: just the one that goes above ground at 125th Street. The 2-3 is already. Peeled off by that
1: point. You know, it's always convenient how many uh, dilapidated buildings and condemned areas there are in New York City for them to just completely destroy. And at one point, Hercules is saying to himself, what ballads shall be sung? What legends shall be told? What memories shall this glorious moment evoke? And I'm reading this and like, there's no evidence there's any human being (laughs) here to witness what's going on. Now, later in the issue, we do see there was apparently a crowd that shows up at the end. But just at the
0: time I'm it, yeah. I should put that on, on page eleven. When Hercules is, is lifting up this whole building to drop on Thor, sometimes Stan will hastily write, uh, "Don't worry, this was an abandoned building. This, this is not. There were <laughs> people in there, but in this case, Kirby is clearly drawing it as an abandoned building. This is not just Stan interjecting that uh, oh, all of the hundreds of bystanders that would have been killed. Don't worry, they're they're okay."
1: Yeah, uh, and at one point during the fight on page 12, Thor is able to get out from under the falling building when his, I think his, his strength is halved at this point. He gets himself free of this falling building and says to himself, by the golden girdle of Volstag, I am saved. I, I believe that that is an exclamation I should start to use more often. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Next time you were saved, you should say that. (laughs) uh, So I guess this is the first modern-day mention of Volstagg we've had. This is the first indication. Of course, they never make it clear. As far as we know, the Tales of Asgard stories could be happening in the far future. There has never been much indication as to what Thor's relationship to the Tales of Asgard stories are. But here, he is referencing a character who we have so far only seen In Tales of Asgard. The earlier Tales of
1: Asgard stories were very clear that it was in his youth. Yes. But yes, this current storyline that's going on, who knows? (laughs) Okay.
0: Let's go ahead and jump back to Tales of Asgard. Speaking of Olsen, we have Thor rescuing Loki from the Queen of the Flying Trolls. Thor is colored as wearing shorts on the first page, but uh, then he is colored quickly after that. (laughs) They,
1: They fix that in this version.
0: Of course, the Queen of the Flying Trolls wants to love up on Thor, but Thor is having none of it. He grabs Loki and escapes. And then we get to the world's lamest thing. He goes back to the boat. Now, we have talked many times about how slowly this boat has been approaching its destination. Well, it turns out that they have just been dicking around this whole time because an Odin comes over him and is like, uh, hey, I need you guys to come rescue uh, Asgard. And they're like, but weren't we sailing somewhere for some sort of purpose? He's like, yeah, thy mission has ended. The danger you have been seeking is here in the city of the Golden Spires. Return thence at once to Asgard. So this is atrocious potting on, let's go ahead and say Kirby's part. To have them go on this epic quest that has gone on for so long, only to find out that it was whatever they were planning on doing, which was never clear, never is going to happen, and they're just going to go back to where they started. That is a shame. But hey, it's not like they haven't had fun and we haven't had fun uh, along the way, and we've met the Warriors 3, and it's been a wonderful storyline, other than the fact it's all for naught, and it's all led up to absolutely nothing.
1: Yeah, I I find this uh, this story a little disappointing for largely that reason. It's like, dude, we barely got around the block when you call us and ask us to come back. Now, I guess that's better than having been, you know, two thirds of the way there and then being summoned back. But yeah, it's (laughs) I don't know what happened there in terms of maybe changing one's mind in terms of how the story was going. But it's, it's it's
0: a little weird. It's I literally this story has been going going for a full year. It's been going for a long time, at least six months.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'll Uh, I'll, I'll say six months. I think that's
0: right. But we'll never even know where they were going because they turn right back around. Oh well. Okay. Let's go ahead and jump into Tales to Astonish number seventy-seven: Submariner and the Incredible Hulk.
1: All right. So it's an all Hulk cover. Uh, We just see Submariner in the corner box. It says on the cover, the thriller you never expected to see. We see the Hulk. Rick Jones is in the foreground saying to someone, presumably uh, General Thunderbolt Ross, Bruce Banner is the Hulk. And this is not one of those sorts of stories where it's going to turn out it was a dream or it was a fantasy or it's all going to be made right at the end. This is actually going to happen this time. But before that, we must get through an issue of Submariner. I have made no secret of the fact that I have been relatively disappointed in this Submariner story. Submariner is going to his uh, council of advisors or whoever this would be to let them know that he needs to go to the surface world because he's pretty sure that their nuclear tests are w- what's causing these earthquakes in the area.
0: We should say Stanley Ryder, Adam Austin, Pensler, Vince Goddard, Anchor. So, uh, again, uh, Gene Colin continuing to be inked by Cleta. has been him for, what, like, nine issues now, and it's just been unbearable, and we haven't had any respite. I think we have, like, two more issues of Quetta, and then we are starting to get some different anchors, which I am just desperate for. Cleta did a shockingly good job on Thor this month, but he is continuing to do an absolutely atrocious job over Colin on this book. Well, once
1: again, Colin is just one of the most difficult pencilers to ink. and uh, And not only is he very difficult, but also he is very different in terms of style. And it just does not work in any way, shape, or form. So Submariner heads off. Uh, He won't let Dorma come with him because he needs her to stay and make sure that she keeps an eye on the powers that might try to rise up against him. He heads off for the surface and finds out that it's not nuclear testing, but it's some big drilling platform that is causing this problem. And inside the drilling platform are... Hank Pym, and Janet Van Dyne,
0: along with a bunch of government scientists. (laughs) Yes, shocking. We haven't seen them in many months, and to have them show up here, of all places. Absolutely shocking.
1: It, it very much is, but it's nice. I like it. And so, yeah, he's just here being a scientist these days, and he and his girlfriend, fiance, significant other, whatever you would call it, Janet Van Dyne, are out, you know, she's out here accompanying him as they do some kind of research that involves this big drill. Well. Samariter finds this thing and stops the drill from spinning because, you know, this is causing damage to his kingdom in real time and probably killing people. But the humans send uh, divers in after him. Of course, they are no match. Soldiers on the platform open fire. They are no match. And then the behemoth is starting to come out. And I guess that's actually why he left Dorma behind was because there was some talk of the behemoth coming out from its watery underground cavern or whatever and you can think of this as almost sort of like an hp lovecraftian uh, you know, sort of thing that comes up from out of the deep um however it was apparently created originally as some sort of fail-safe weapon for atlantis but now this tectonic activity is setting it loose anyway yes. we have a big splash page for the last page on page 12 I really – one of the things I find about Colin in this period is I don't really understand his rationale for when he creates full-page splash pages. They don't really seem to be worth it. You know what I mean? And it seems that he would be able to devote more time to storytelling on other pages if he didn't do these things for pages that just don't seem to – warranted anyway there's finally a confrontation between submariner and hank pym right on the last page and we will leave that off there however we are not going to have to wait until the next month this will be continued in this month's issue of
0: avengers a pretty terrible issue it is nice to see hank and jan again but what a bizarre place to see them it is nice to go ahead and move on to a new storyline after doing the storyline forever and i guess It's nice to have some surface men finally appear in this book. I think Namor versus surface men is in some ways a more interesting thing than Namor versus Atlanteans, but this is all pretty lame. Let me go ahead and point out the top panel of page two. I got to say, just that drawing of Namor sitting in a chair. We have talked before about how good Jack Kirby is at drawing people sitting in chairs, how it is a hard thing to draw. This is just god of art of someone sitting in a chair. It does not look like he is actually sitting in this chair. It looks like he is, you know, there is no physical contact being made between him and this chair. It looks like he's doing a squat and hover. <laughs> it looks like he's <laughs> squatting over it or something. And it is, you know, I don't know whether to blame Colin or Colette on this. I blame them both. I think it. they both are falling down on the job here. Certainly Coletta often inks people in a way where they seem to have no contact with what they are supposed to be in contact with, even when he is in Kirby. And here, I think Coletta also didn't do a great job showing him setting a chair. It is just awful. Contrasts to the top of page three, um, something Colin is good at when there's another earthquake and people are on the run. Both Colin and Coletta do a much better job at this. Uh, Colin likes yes. chaos. And Coletta is actually giving these falling rocks some sense of weight. And it is shockingly good.
1: Coletta is actually good at rubble. Like that. that yeah. is suited to his inking style.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: All right. We're ready to move on to Hulk. I am more than ready. (laughs) So this is, as I said, a a monumentous issue of the Hulk in that we have a big change in the status of the Hulk vis-a-vis the Marvel Universe here.
0: And it's been happening in a lot of books. We've had Jane finally find out that Don Blake is Thor. We've had, uh, well, now we see that Betty knows on some level that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Stanley is, or whomever, has been getting tired of a lot of these secret identity stories and has been doing away well with them. And this is huge that yep. uh, to have this this be revealed. But first we have script by Stan Lee, layouts by Jack Kirby, penciling and inking by Johnny Romita. So we didn't have Johnny Romita inking himself in Daredevil this month, but we do have him inking himself here in Hulk, which is a lovely surprise, and it is gorgeous.
1: Yes, it is. Last time we saw the Hulk, he had just been shot into the far future by a T-gun that Banner had invented, but then the army put together, not knowing what it would do. Hulk is now thousands of years in the future and it turns out when he gets there hey the immortal executioner is still around as we said it would be kind of cool if they had just stuck with the idea that it's like well he's immortal so he's just still around <laughs> at this point in the future but we will uh, eventually find out that's not exactly what's going on hulk and executioner are having a big knockdown drag out battle that is pretty awesome <laughs> then stan lee once again going back to this thing meanwhile many centuries in the past General Thunderbolt Raws. Now, and once again, as they say, when you say meanwhile, it can be like meanwhile in the story we are telling so i can kind of let that one go but still (laughs) i always find it funny they finally go ahead and say "Let's see do they finally throw rick jones in the brig let's see no they can't he's being set free we can't hold him any longer although we wish we could betty they don't have any jurisdiction over rick jones apparently you would think that if he was trespassing on army land that that would be something they could press him on
0: which he has done a lot
1: a lot um and spied on stuff he shouldn't be hearing and all sorts of kind of stuff but they're just going to keep an eye on him so we go back to the knockdown drag out battle with the Hulk and the Executioner. Meanwhile, as we saw, the Executioner actually has a whole future army of these like killer tripod robots, which are very similar to the ones described in the book version of War of the Worlds. And these tripods are attacking the city that the Hulk has been in, which also was antagonistic to him and which we'll return to in a second after seeing Rick Jones return to one of he and Bruce Banner's cave hideouts where rick jones starts having a panic attack basically talbot finds him in there that are going to keep us in suspense a few moments longer with that back in the future executioners tripod tanks are just about to actually you know breach this city that they're attacking and hulk thinks to himself let him smash the city let him smash everything it's not my fight all i care about is getting back to my own time where i belong there is no place for me here. No place for the Hulk anywhere. Then suddenly, without forethought, he leaps. I can't do it. Can't watch execution or destroy a whole city. Finally, uh, the Hulk seems to fade out of existence, presumably to show up back in present day. I'm not sure if that's actually what happens, but we'll find that out next issue. And then Rick Jones reveals to Talbot that... Bruce Banner is the Hulk because he figures you know Bruce Banner the Hulk they're dead they've been destroyed uh, they don't exist anymore so why bother keeping this secret and besides this might convince people that Banner was never a traitor in the first place and so he lets the secret be known So the cat is out of the bag. There's a then little cliffhanger thing at the end with some kind of whirlwind that seems to form. The implication here is that that might be the Hulk returning to his own time. But as I said, we will find out what the actual nature of that is next issue. So, yeah, the Ramita art in here is great. The momentous change in the Hulk's status from now on will be great. There is a sound effect at one point when the Hulk is fighting the executioner that says FOOM, F O O O M. And at first I was like, oh, is that like Friends of Old Marvel, which I don't think existed yet at this point? But uh, then there is a footnote that said, Academic note, the sound effect above is pronounced FOOM. The third O is silent. Uh, (laughs) So uh, anyway, yeah, that's, uh, you know, a lot of fun, momentous changes, great art. I'm on board.
0: Yes, this is an absolutely gorgeous issue with Romina penciling and ink. And it is great to see Hulk and Executioner bashing on each other a long time. Great to see the Hulk cut in this position where he has to save the people who are attacking him. I think it is well past time for everybody to find out the Hulk's secret identity. It was one of the silliest secret identities in Marvel Comics. It never was <laughs> <worked> all the <laughs> well that people wouldn't be able to instantly figure out what was going on. I always feel bad in stories when you have a love interest who has always been duped. Finally, they decide to reveal the secret identity, and they don't allow the love interest to piece it together. At one point in the 90s, they decided to go ahead and have Superman reveal his secret identity to Lois once they were engaged. And I'm like, can't she have figured it out? Like, can't you go ahead and write a story in which she figures it out instead of having Superman just voluntarily reveal it to her? Obviously I liked that in Superman 2, one of my favorite movies. I would have preferred it if Betty had pieced it together. But instead it is entirely believable that Rick, you know, at this point has good reason to think that Bruce Banner is dead. And rather than get Lyndon Baines Johnson involved, he decides to go ahead and spill the beans directly to Glen Talbot, which is a good Way to move forward, I think.
1: Well, I guess that you then would be happy that back in Spider-Man, the other Betty did at least on a subconscious level figure out the secret identity.
0: Yes, I like that a lot. I thought you were going to say that she did contact Lyndon B. Johnson, and I'm like, wait, she did? <laughs> I must.
1: Uh sure. Yeah, she's got his private number.
0: Yeah, I love the way the tripods look. They would later do a Marvel character that was somewhat based on War of the Worlds called Kill Raven, where he would fight tripods. And of course, you and I grew up reading Boys' Life, the Boy Scout magazine. <laughs> um, they just had a comic book that would just appear one page every issue in which they were fighting tripods in the future. Reminds me of that. Yes, I say in my notes Rick Jones spills all, Stanley getting tired of sillier secret identities. So, yes, a great issue. Okay, let's right. go ahead and move on to X-Men. Yes, let's do it. Let's do X-Men number 18 if Iceman should fail. So we have our first post-Kirby issue. And indeed, the art does not look good. We have a very honest credit box here. It says, A Fair Story by Stan Lee, Adequate Art by Jay Gavin, Tolerable Inking by Dick Ayers, The World's Greatest Lettering by Artie Simek, Marvel's Birthday Boy of the Month. This is the most honest credit box I have ever read.
1: So since Artie Cimac is always the butt of the joke when it comes to these credits, this is one time when they're like, okay, we'll denigrate everybody else, but go ahead and let Artie Cimac have the glory this month.
0: Yes. And in fact, they're honest. This is only a fair story by Stanley. This is only Adequate art by Jake Evan. And this is only tolerable Inking by Dick Ayres. So... They were just being honest here, folks. The X-Men are still in a balloon going out to the outer atmosphere. All the X-Men except for Iceman. Magneto then decides, I'm going to destroy the X-Mansion. And he lifts it up off of its foundation. Of course, it it only has just a few pipes sticking out of the bottom of it. Well, at least it has a few pipes. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) better than the Baxter building. (laughs) And he picks the whole thing up and is like, wait, what am I doing? I don't want to destroy this and just sets it gently back down. It uh, goes inside. A few things have been knocked over, of course.
1: Presumably, he magnetically uh, reattached the pipes and the electrical wires and everything else.
0: Yes, this is a little more believable than when some mariner picks up the Baxter building and sets it down and does not have the ability to reattach everything. Nice art, for the most part. The art in this issue uh, by Jake Gavin, without Kirby assisting him, is not very good. But then we've begun a little earlier than last issue did. We then catch up to last issue as the Worthingtons arrive. Magneto can, of course, hypnotize them using magnetic attraction, which I guess is partly how magnetism works. you have the ability to hypnotize people? Okay.
1: I think that we've seen that before in these X-Men issues, but I don't think that sticks around much longer.
0: No, but I love, on page four, the art of Magneto hypnotizing them with one glowing eye. I feel like I'm being hypnotized just by looking at it. But we cut to Iceman back in the hospital. They decide to save him. They need to use a, a, what do they call it here? A laser-induced hypodermic to get medicine through his icy skin up in the balloon. Savior manages to overcome the mental blocker that is on him. I did it. My brain is unshackled. Now, this is a situation where she and she does instantly be able to save all of them. This is ideal situation for her. Like, we're in a balloon. It's floating up. I'm going to make it go down. But no. This is the whole X-Men. Of course, it's always good to to have the whole team work together, but they are all trying to figure out how to get the balloon down. Magneto, meanwhile, has decided because the Worthingtons have a mutant son, he is able to then take from them something as they sleep that will allow him to create new mutants. We cut back to a flashback of how Magneto and Toad were exiled to the Stranger's planet, and he would leave them alone for months at a time and finally magneto was able to figure out how to escape back to earth and toad is like i knew it master i knew we'd escape nothing can imprison magneto but then magneto says you knew we'd escape you brainless inconsequential quad. this is where one like you belongs and he kicks him off the ladder and leaves him there ice man finally gets out of the hospital goes to confront magneto we see magneto creating these mutants and it looks like he's creating a lot of them, and it looks like they're pretty much done. Now, these are actual living beings he has created. They look kind of like Wally Wood is drawing them. Iceman finally attacks Magneto, has to face him single-handedly. The rest of the X-Men have finally figured out how to sort of deflate their balloon and go back down to Earth. At least Jean gets to break the fall, which is nice. And she had been able to at least keep them
1: from floating higher, even though yes. she was not able to actually bring them down.
0: So then the... X Men join the fight against Magneto. Then finally the fight ends when Xavier says, Look above you and see your fate. And he says, It won't work. I can't be tricked so easily. He says it's no trick, man, man. I knew there was one sure way to defeat you, and only I could accomplish it. So while my valiant X Men held you at bay, I sent my thoughts out into the infinite and finally found the one I sought. You weren't lying, it's the stranger. He's coming for me again. You now at first I thought That this was Xavier just putting a false mental image in Magneto's mind of the stranger coming after him. But I guess it's real. I guess this really is the stranger who's been called to go after Magneto, and Magneto flees off into the distance.
1: I guess that Xavier's mental powers can traverse a whole galaxy, or multiple galaxies. (laughs) Uh, Sure, why not?
0: Why not? So then they go in and they find, again, these mutants that Magneto created looks pretty much like, okay, these are actual living beings who need full civil rights at this point. But uh, <laughs> no, they go ahead and they throw a switch and they go, the android mutants, they've vanished, faded away to nothingness. It's like, I don't know, man. I think there's, those people had names at this point, man. I don't know if they can just vanish into nothingness. The Worthingtons wake up in the morning and feel oddly rested. Uh, they come downstairs and they are hanging out with everybody at Xavier's school. Next ish, a new type of foe, a new type of story, a new type of action, but the same old Marvel magic. Nuff said, but next issue will be our final Nuff said, because next issue is Stan Lee's last issue, and then Roy Thomas is going to take over this book. This is a perfectly okay storyline. This is our first wrap-up in a long time, but it's not a cliffhanger. I do... Feel bad for these people that Magneto has created that then uh, get reduced to nothingness at the end. (laughs) The art is really a shame. Really, Jay Gavin, without Kirby helping him out, and Ayers doing him no favors on the inks, I really don't like the art in this issue at all. But X-Men versus Magneto, what can you complain about? It's always good.
1: You know, I consider the art in here, as they would say in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mostly harmless. So <laughs> it sounds like you are more uh, troubled by it than I am. But they themselves say
0: adequate art and tolerable inking. That's actually on the page in the issue. That's canon. Right. Well, that's what I said. It's <laughs> adequate. It's adequate. Yes. You know. Yes. Uh,
1: <laughs> OK, so at one point when. Professor X is trying to shake off this brain dampener or whatever it is that's keeping him from doing anything while in the balloon. He says to himself, "'But even he has overlooked one basic item. My ability to read minds and project my thoughts is due to the counter-ego which I possess. Even now, that same counter-ego is probing the distorter, applying as much stress and strain as humanly possible.'" Which I'm like, okay, sure, fine. Uh, But yeah, that next panel, the way that Professor X's face is drawn, and he looks kind of like Beavis. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a sound effect, kabak, and then I did it. My brain is unshackled, which, you know, it's, it's all funny. When Iceman is trying to infiltrate the X-Mansion that is now run by Magneto, he falls down off an ice ladder and needs to save himself. So you would think, oh, this is Iceman. He'll just create an ice slide to go ahead and slide him down onto the ground. No, he creates a thin frozen cable toward the rooftop snagging the edge of the final fateful second so he creates an ice rope that he can then tie around a corner of the building yes yeah sure um i guess (laughs) Uh, and then uh talk about you know you know oh no we need to clean up after the party so mom and dad don't find out uh when the worthingtons wake up uh the caption above says then with the threat finally over the X-Men set to work with a will, repairing everything repairable and concealing everything else. Thus, when Mr. and Mrs. Worthington finally awake the next morning, and then they don't see what's going on. So it's straight up risky business here at the end. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> uh, or maybe weird science. I don't know. Anyway, something like that. Uh, anyway, those are my thoughts on it. Yeah, I, the, the art is perfectly fine nothing to write home about the story is the story's okay uh, we've had worse x-men stories the ending's a little weird uh, I, uh, another thing about that death trap they, that he put them in which is just i mean as far as ridiculous death traps go this is on the more ridiculous end but magneto even built a nice little porthole in there for them to be able to see out <laughs> Like, why why anyway yeah let's uh let's move along from this one here
0: That's it for this episode of Marvel Rubin Club. We will come back and do the other four books from March 1966 last time. I think this has been a pretty good month. We've had some really great books, and we had one book that was best described as fair, adequate, and tolerable.
1: (laughs) Sure. Yeah, that's that's, that's a good enough explanation of uh, what we just read. I guess that's it, and you and I will continue talking in a minute here, but we will say
0: goodbye to our listeners for the next week. Okay. Thanks for coming out, everybody. We will see you soon.
1: Indeed. And for all the Americans out there, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. And for everybody else, I hope you had a good Thursday on that day anyway. So yes. <laughs> take care and stay safe out there. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marble Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciate it. We love hearing from you. Go to rereadclub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.